When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Then Bayes asks a curious question. Was Smitty's wallet ever found? The answer... From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Last week, I told you a story. It was a story that I constructed based on my impression of the murder scene of Lloyd and Agnes Courtney. The opinions that I presented in last week's episode were based on a limited amount of crime scene photos and a crime scene video. But today, we're going to dig deeper into that crime scene as I break down the testimony of a man who spent three days at 4945 Stadium Drive following the double homicide. Fort Worth Police Department crime scene investigator Patrick Glass. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Deborah Perringer's capital murder trial began with a testimony from the Courtney's neighbor, Mabel Zabo. Then the owner of the produce market where Agnes had shopped on the morning of her murder. Then the first arriving officer. And then the testimony of Patrick Glass. Glass had been with the Fort Worth Police Department for 13 years and had been investigating crime scenes for about five and a half years at the time of the trial. He has an associate's degree in criminal justice and in-house trainings to qualify him as a crime scene analyst. Glass was called as a witness by the prosecution, as you would imagine. Direct examination is being completed by D.A. Lloyd Welchel. Welchel begins by drawing out Glass's credentials that I just mentioned. Then he moves on to admit State's Exhibit 19, a video that was taken of the crime scene before Agnes and Lloyd's bodies were removed. That video is now available on our YouTube channel. If you want to follow along with the video or just review it after this episode, go to the Truth and Justice Podcast YouTube channel and view the Courtney Double Homicide crime scene video. Now this video, it was actually filmed by a member of the fire department. And as we move into the testimony, Glass explains that he arrived at the scene at 6.54 p.m. on the evening of the murders, about 90 minutes after Gonzalez and Galusha showed up. The first phase of the investigation went on for about 12 hours. Glass tells the jury that he was there investigating the scene for several days, but, quote, not all in one stretch. He cleared the scene on this first occasion at 7.05 a.m. the next day. He returned to the scene again later that day and again the next day. 
Welchel then moves on to having Glass explain what items that he collected as evidence from the crime scene. And we're going to see a lot of this throughout his testimony. For some reason, Welchel doesn't get into too much detail. He's more or less using Glass to get all of the photos and crime scene evidence admitted as evidence. And first up on the docket were the glasses that were found on the couch in the living room. Welchel asks whose glasses they were, and Glass responds that he believes they were Lloyd's. Then we find out that Officer Glass knew Mr. Courtney personally. Quote, did you know Lloyd Courtney? Glass's response, yes, I did. Was it kind of eerie being in his house working this homicide? Yes, it was. Next, Welchel moves on to the armchair cover from the couch. And then we move on to the fragments of cast iron skillet that were scattered throughout the house. Glass testified that he collected and bagged each individual piece of skillet separately. Then, over the course of the next few days, Glass's assisting officer and Officer Wallace worked on piecing the skillets back together like a puzzle. The finished products revealed that four skillets were used in total, but only one was complete. Three of the skillets were missing pieces. Namely, the handles were taken by the killer. One thing that I find really interesting is that the smallest of the four skillets was found at Lloyd's feet where he lay deceased in the dining room. I'm finding myself wondering if the smallest pan would be the killer's first choice, because it's lighter and easier to swing, or their last choice, because its small size might make it appear to be less effective than the larger skillets. In my initial look at the crime scene, it looked to me like Lloyd was attacked first in the living room, then the killer moved into the bedroom where Agnes was killed, then back to the dining room to finish Lloyd off after he made his way to the phone. But now I'm wondering if it didn't go like that at all. It's obvious that at some point Lloyd was bleeding on the couch, that much we know. But the skillet shards in the living room aren't on the couch. They're scattered from the middle of the room and towards the side opposite the couch. So maybe he was attacked in the middle of the room and fell onto the couch. Or maybe the attack started on the couch and the killer continued to hit him with the skillets as he made his way to the phone. It could be that he was never left alone at all. And the evidence we see ranging from the living room to the dining room were all part of the same attack. That might help explain the groceries that were left on the floor between the kitchen and the dining room. Originally, I thought that if Agnes walked in after Lloyd was attacked, that he would have been on the couch, in clear view as she would have walked through the laundry room door. But if Lloyd was never left alone, and the attack was dynamic, starting in the living room and ending in the dining room, then Agnes wouldn't have been able to see Lloyd's body on the floor until after she cleared the dining room table and almost made it to the kitchen. I'm not nearly ready to complete a full crime scene reconstruction yet. It's just a thought that crossed my mind while I was thinking about the small skillet choice. But for now, let's get back into the transcript. As we move along, something really peculiar is revealed. If you remember last week, I told you that there was a broken side table found in the dining room next to Lloyd's body. The legs were all broken off. We find out in the transcript that three of them were found underneath Lloyd's body. And through Glass's testimony, we find that the table actually came from the living room. There's an obvious spot in the living room where the chair belonged, complete with indentations in the carpet from the legs. 
It appears that it used to live right next to the couch, next to the armrest where the blood stain was found. So one of two things happened here. Either the killer used the table as a weapon, which would tell us something about our offender. This is not a run-of-the-mill particle board coffee table. It's old and it's solid wood. Now, I don't know how much exactly it weighs, but I can tell you that it's heavy. Not the first choice to be used as a weapon, especially if the killer wasn't particularly strong. But the other possibility is that Lloyd is the one who grabbed the table. I'm sure as we read along, and especially as we get into the forensics, we're going to find our answer. But for now, I'm wondering if Lloyd could have been using the table as a shield, which may better explain at least some of the broken skillets, if they were being smacked against a hard, solid wood table rather than a human body. Next, Weltzel brings up the note that was stabbed into Lloyd's right leg, or so we thought. According to Officer Glass, the note, quote, wasn't into the skin. And looking a little closer and at some close-ups of the knife, the blade is actually bent. Unfortunately, we never get any more details about the knife or the note being stabbed into the leg during Glass's testimony. But at this point, it seems that the knife was just stabbed into Lloyd's pants, not his leg. Glass goes on to read the note and explains that the discoloration that we see in the photos was due to fingerprint and blood analysis that was later completed. Then Welchel moves on to talk about forced entry. Glass says that there were no signs of forced entry, and then he moves on to fingerprints. Eleven latent prints were processed from the crime scene. Now, during this testimony, according to Glass, he is unaware of any of the prints matched up with anyone through APHIS, but he doesn't believe so. Later in the testimony, at the end, he clears this up a little bit more and says that, to his knowledge, none of the prints were usable to identify anyone. But even with that, Glass doesn't know for certain what exactly happened with the prints. So it seems like we're going to have to wait for the forensics testimony before we get some of these answers. Next, we learn that there was a caller ID box found on the floor of the bedroom where Agnes was killed. It was found on the floor near the computer desk. The cords had been cut. There was visible blood on the box, so Glass collected it as evidence. There was also blood found all around the area where the computer was located. The computer and printer were collected as evidence as well, as were multiple blood samples throughout the crime scene. Now, Welter goes through a process of identifying several of these samples. He introduced the following five exhibits in this portion of the transcript. Exhibits 54 through 58. 54 is blood from the top of the south cabinet door below the sink in the kitchen. 55 is the north cabinet door below that sink. 56 is blood from the north wall behind the door in the bedroom where Agnes was killed. 57 was from the face of the knife cabinet drawer in the kitchen. And 58 was blood from the finger mark on the southwest corner of the dining room tabletop. Now, it's unclear at this point exactly why Welchel chose to admit only these five blood samples. Now, it doesn't take the most proficient Googler out there to find out that the Courtney's daughter, Debbie's, blood was found in five places on the crime scene. That's essentially why she was convicted. But these are not the five locations where her blood was found. So I'm still unclear as to why Welchel chose to admit only these five during Glass's testimony. Next, Glass explained that he took many blood samples from the scene, 
somewhere in the range of 45 to 50 total samples. Then he goes on to confirm that he checked all the drains in the house for any indication that anyone cleaned up blood inside the house. There was no evidence whatsoever that any cleanup occurred. Welter moves on to talk about the groceries on the floor and Agnes's purse, which is spilled open on the counter. We find out here that there was some transfer blood found on one of the plastic grocery bags. And then he quickly jumps back to the photos of the kitchen cabinets and to the blood that was collected from those locations. Glass says that he took the blood sample from the top of the knife drawer handle because it was consistent with someone opening the drawer with blood on their hands. Then we move on to the top of the cabinet doors under the sink and there, Glass believes that because cleaning supplies were left in that location, it stands to reason that the killer may have opened those cabinets to get supplies to clean up the crime scene. He confirms again that there was no blood found in any of the bathrooms, and I believe the implication here is that the killer cleaned themselves off with supplies from under the sink and took them with them, as opposed to washing blood off of their person using a sink or a shower. Next, there's quite a bit of testimony about a smear of blood that was collected from the mirror on the door to the bedroom where Agnes was found. Now remember, there was quite a bit of blood found on the wall behind that door. The transfer patterns indicate to me that at some point Agnes was pinned between the door and the wall, or at least that she was up against the wall at some point after she was covered in blood. Glass testifies, and a photo was submitted as evidence that he collected a sample of blood from the other side of the door on the mirror near the doorknob. Welter suggests through his questioning that this could be the killer's blood, as though they used their left hand to push the door open. Then he pairs that with more transfer blood on the latch side of the door frame, and Glass theorizes that the samples together could indicate that the offender used the door frame opposite the door when it's open to brace themselves to assist in pinning Agnes behind the door. Now, I'm going to tell you now, do not forget about these blood samples. They're going to be a critical element to the case as we move forward. Next, we find out that Agnes's car was found in the garage with the door closed, and then direct examination ends with Weltel displaying photos of the trunk of Deborah Perringer's car. Inside there was a book titled, How to Live and Die with Texas Probate. It's a book about wills. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Cross-examination begins with Debbie's court-appointed attorney, David Bays. Bays opens up with a joke. He's asking Glass how long Lloyd served on the police force. 
Glass explains that if you add up his active time in the force and his years working as a civilian contractor for the department, Smitty had been around the station for around 50 years. Bays asks, quote, Do you know whether or not he had Bonnie and Clyde's fingerprints? Now, this is an obvious goof, given the fact that Bonnie and Clyde were both shot to death in the 30s, but nonetheless, Glass plays along and responds, I think he did. It's worth noting that Bayes did not offer a single objection through the entirety of direct examination. Not one. But on the contrary, Welchel objects four times within the first few pages of Cross. Bayes is coming right out of the gates, both trying to insinuate that the police were desperate to close the case on the murder of one of their own, and that this was a home invasion carried out by some criminal that Smitty had helped put behind bars. And he definitely crosses some lines early on, but Welchel is right there to keep him in check. Bayes circles right back to the crime scene video that was played during direct examination. He's basically doing a play-by-play of the scene with glass. His first stop is the living room. Bayes points out that Lloyd's shoes were found next to the couch by the front door. He then asks if this would indicate that the attack on Lloyd began in the couch. Glass responds, well, I wasn't there, which honestly is a fair answer. Bayes presses on, suggesting that Lloyd was likely sitting on the left side of the couch when he was hit on the left side of his head, knocking off his glasses and spraying blood and Lloyd over to the right side of the couch. He backs this up with the fact that the coffee table is pushed out away from the couch at an angle, as though it was pushed away from the right side of the couch. Bayes asks if that's consistent with Lloyd pressing off the table as he got up from the couch to make his way to the dining room. I can see where Bayes is going with this. He's setting a scene where Lloyd is sitting on the couch next to the front door watching TV when someone bursts in the door and immediately hits him over the head. At least, that's where I think he's going with this line of questioning. In my opinion, if that's where he's going, the theory is flawed from Jump Street because the skillets used in the scenario came from the kitchen. The glass, on the other hand, well, he really doesn't weigh in at all. His response is, well, I'm not a crime scene reconstructionist. Bayes continues on with his theory. In this hypothesis, Lloyd is first hit on the head with a skillet while on the couch. The skillet shatters, and as he puts it, it's no longer a useful weapon. He then suggests that as Lloyd heads to the dining room, the killer, now without a weapon, grabs the end table, spilling its contents onto the ground, and chases Lloyd with the table as their replacement weapon. The glass, he disagrees. He says that he believes that the table was used as a weapon after Lloyd was already down in the dining room. Personally, I disagree with both of them. I'm not so sure the table was used as a weapon at all. I can't see anyone grabbing that heavy table as a weapon. There were too many better options in the room. And I can't see how it was used on Lloyd when he was already down, because three of the legs of that table were found underneath his body. The more and more I think about it, it makes the most sense to me that it was Lloyd who grabbed the table. I'll be curious to see if there are any marks on it that indicate that it was hit with a skillet. Fortunately, I don't have any clear crime scene photos of the table, and so far I haven't found anything about it in any of the other testimony. Now, Glass, he actually supports my theory without even realizing it. He says that the reason that he doesn't think that the killer grabbed the table during the initial attack was because there was blood on the underside of the table. Quote, It appeared that whoever picked it up had either already had blood on their hands or was bleeding from there. End quote. So, 
who would have been bleeding after the first blows to the head? Lloyd. Baze and Glass get into a back and forth about a blood stain on the right arm of the couch. Baze is trying to say that the blood is a, quote, spray pattern from Lloyd being hit on the left side of his face. Glass says there was no directional spray in that location and that the stain Baze is looking at is the impression of a bloody left hand. And for the record, I agree with Officer Glass. It definitely looks like transfer blood to me. I don't see any kind of directional spatter. It doesn't take long before Bay realizes that he's not going to win this one and he moves on. But he doesn't let up. He's moving very quickly through this video. As the video tracks from the living room to the dining room, Bayes points out that in the video, the handles to the plastic grocery bags are pointed up, as though someone set them down carefully. But in later photos, the handles are no longer upright. Bay suggests that someone, quote, defiled the crime scene, which is a stretch as far as I'm concerned. Yes, the handles of the bags have shifted between when the video was taken and when the photos were taken, but one thing remains the same. There's a bundle of bananas that is halfway in the bag and halfway on the floor next to one of the bags that's kind of laying towards the side in the video. There's also a bag or purse of some kind on its side next to the groceries. That doesn't necessarily mean that the groceries were dropped in a panic. It really could go either way, both before and after this video were taken. There are people moving through there and things are getting shifted around unintentionally. Next, Baze moves on to the trash can, or trash basket really is what it looks more like, that was dumped all over the laundry room floor. Now you remember I mentioned last week that the lid was missing. Baze points out that it actually looks more like a laundry hamper than a trash can, and honestly, I have to agree with him. But then he confronts Glass with what he believes to be the police's theory regarding the trash. At a glance, it looks like the trash basket was simply knocked over, as I said last week, spilling its contents onto the ground. But a closer look reveals that, number one, there's no bag or liner in the basket, and number two, the contents appear to have been dumped out rather than to have spilled out as the basket tipped over. Had that been the case, you would expect to find half or at least some of the trash still in the basket. But in this case, the basket is completely empty, at least from what I can see in the video. Now, this is an area where I wish we had more or better photos of the scene. I don't have any clear photos of that trash or of that basket. But in the video, it does in fact appear that the can was completely dumped out, not knocked over. Which is why the police theorized that the killer dumped out the contents so that they could use the trash bag liner to help remove items from the crime scene. When Bay confronts Glass with this theory, he confidently states that that is in fact what he believes happened. And then, Bay's jumps way ahead of the prosecution and tells the jury that later in the trial they're going to discover that Deborah Perringer's blood was found on the white plastic lid to that trash can. But there's a problem. First of all, like I mentioned, the lid wasn't anywhere to be found in the video. I still don't know where it was. And secondly, Glass admits on the stand that he didn't collect any samples from the lid on that night because, quote, I recall looking at the lid and looking at the lid with the other officers working there, and I don't recall seeing anything that we thought needed to be collected. End quote. This is a big deal. According to Glass, he and other officers from the scene all examined the lid and didn't see anything worth noting on it. 
It's a white plastic lid on which they later find blood containing Deborah's DNA. How do you miss a blood spot on a white plastic lid? The hits keep coming with the trash. Not only did Glass not collect any of it as evidence, he also failed to document the contents. Which becomes a problem when Bay suggests that a red spot visible in the video could be blood-stained gauze. We're later going to learn that Debbie's defense is that she cut her finger while at the house that day doing dishes. And I imagine that when we get to her testimony, I'm sure that she told the jury that she bandaged the wound and discarded it in the trash bin. Unfortunately, as her attorney Bayes says, we'll never know if that gauze was in the trash because Glass failed to document the contents. Bayes then moves on to confirm that the house and especially the kitchen were all very clean. Glass confirms that the kitchen looked as though it had been recently cleaned and it's basically spotless. The next Bay speculates that the credenza, is what he's calling it, where Agnes's purse was found, is a likely location where she, by force of habit, always leaves her purse, and then points out that there was no cash found in the contents that were spilled out onto the credenza. And then we get into the blood on the scene. Bayes points out several areas with large amounts of blood on the carpet and asks Glass if he would expect the killer to have blood on their shoes. And he would. He even slides the scale from possible to probable during this line of questioning. Bayes then circles back to the plastic grocery bags on the floor. Now this go-round, he gets Bayes to acknowledge that it's possible that Agnes came into the house and gently set the grocery bags on the floor and her purse on the credenza. Next, Bayes wants to talk about a receipt that was found on the kitchen floor near the groceries. It's blood-stained and Glass can't remember where the receipt was from. As he's checking his notes, Bayes just moves on. So hopefully we'll find out more about the receipt later. Bayes then begins asking questions about the cut phone cord. He asks Glass how it appeared to be cut, and Glass says the edges are jagged. Then the discussion moves on to the phone receiver. It was found covered in blood on the floor next to Smitty's left shoulder. But Bayes points out that the cord attached to the phone was found under one of the broken legs of the end table, suggesting again that the table was used as a weapon but after Smitty was already down. Still moving quickly, Bayes asks Glass about the blood in the bathrooms. Glass explains that he visually inspected all the drains and swabbed them for blood. They were all clean and dry. Now, he says in this part of his testimony that he did not use luminol to confirm the lack of blood. He says that in his opinion, the situation didn't warrant the use because it was clear that no one had cleaned up in any of the sinks or tubs. So, score one for Debbie, who was seen leaving the house that morning looking perfectly normal and without any visible blood on her person. But in this next line of questioning, I feel like Bayes did Debbie more harm than good. He walks us through the two spare bedrooms in the house. One appeared to be Agnes's office, so to speak. The desk in there was covered in paperwork related to work and side projects, and nothing was disturbed in that room. Then we move on to the other room which Glass acknowledges appears to be Smitty's office of sorts. There's a roll-top desk in there that housed Smitty's service pistol and several other items belonging to him. This is the room where the only thing disturbed is the top drawer of the dresser. It's pulled out and its contents are dumped out on the floor. And then Bayes asks a curious question. Was Smitty's wallet ever found? 
And the answer is no. So it's Bayes that points out to the jury that only one drawer was dumped out and Smitty's wallet is missing. He seems pretty proud of the fact that he just proved a point, that this was a burglary. But that's not how I see it. My first thought was that his killer must be someone that knows not only him, but the house very well, since they were able to go right to the drawer that contained the wallet. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Now, you might make the argument that just because only one drawer was left open, that doesn't necessarily mean it was the only drawer that was ever opened. And that's true, but the fact that it was pulled all the way out and dumped onto the floor tells me that it was, in fact, the only drawer that was looked in. I can't imagine a burglar opening all the other drawers and simply closing them neatly and then dumping the contents out of the drawer where they actually found what they were looking for. By the way, there were other valuable items in that drawer, including a watch. Now, I'll concede that it's the top drawer and likely would have been the first one to be opened, but that still doesn't explain how a stranger would know to even look in that room, much less that particular dresser for the wallet. Bayes later makes a good point. As he moves into the room where Agnes was found, he points out that she's not wearing any shoes and there are no shoes visible in the crime scene video. The point he's making is that it's unlikely that she would have walked into the house with her hands full of groceries and a purse with her shoes off, which would make it unlikely that she walked in and found Smitty dead on the floor. She wouldn't just take her shoes off and get comfortable before calling for help, giving credit to the theory that she was taking a nap when the attack began on Lloyd. However, I'll be curious to find out if her shoes were found somewhere in the house. I don't see any women's shoes anywhere in this video. Now, they may be in a closet, and if that's the case, it further supports the idea that she was napping. But if they're missing, this could be another backfire on Bayes. He just made the point that the killer would have had blood on their shoes. The evidence seems to indicate that items were taken from the house in a trash bag, and now we potentially have a missing pair of shoes. If they're not found somewhere in this house... I think that it's a pretty good indication that the killer removed their shoes and walked out wearing Agnes's. The next line of questioning is if any forensic testing was done on the computer and printer. Now, Glass says that he did not collect the computer. Another officer took care of that. But he says that, quote, As he understands it, a document was generated on the computer and there was a time given. End quote. 
I'm dying to know what that time is, but we're going to have to wait until we get into the forensics to find out what time the document was generated. So we'll put a pin in that for now. Bayes then continues working through the room. Glass testifies that there was no blood found on the computer or printer, indicating that they were not pulled down off the desk during the attack. Glass then confirms that there were areas of the room where fragile items like ceramic figurines were not disturbed at all. And then Bayes moves on to the cast iron shards. They are all over this room. And this is the room where the only handle to a skillet was found. It's also the room where a large piece of a skillet was embedded into the wall. The point Bayes makes here is that this scene was extremely violent and it would take an incredible amount of force to heave the pan through the drywall. And Glass agrees. Bayes points out all the blood in the bed and comes right out and suggests that Agnes was taking a nap when she was attacked. Welchel objects and the judge overrules him. The back and forth between Bayes and Glass about this topic goes on for quite a while. They're arguing about the reason why Agnes would have been on the bed. The blood pattern seems to indicate that she was laying sideways across the mattress. Therefore, Glass believes she either retreated to the bed during the attack or was pushed onto it. But Bayes tries to make the argument that all of the little figurines on an end table on the other side of the bed were undisturbed. He suggests that if Agnes hit the bed with any amount of force, there would be evidence of items being knocked over on the nightstand. Glass disagrees because the table that Bayes is talking about is about three feet away from the bed. It's not touching it. Now, not for nothing, but for the record, Agnes's niece told me that, quote, any good southern woman would always turn the sheets up from the bottom of the bed and lay sideways during naps so that they wouldn't have to remake the top of the bed when they woke up. Now, if that's accurate, then the scene certainly suggests that Agnes was in fact napping when she was attacked. The sheets are turned up from the bottom. She didn't just fall onto a made bed. So if any of you listening consider yourself to be, quote, good southern women, I would love to know your thoughts on this. At the end of the day, Bayes all but has me convinced that Agnes was napping when she was attacked. Where she laid to rest, her feet were towards the door and her head nearly under the bed. There is a massive amount of blood on the bed, and we know from the blood patterns that at some point she was pinned behind the door. We also know that the killer, if there was only one, had to make at least one trip from the bedroom back to the kitchen at some point, assuming they didn't walk into the room armed with multiple cast iron skillets and a knife. I just can't see a scenario where the bed is not the initial point of attack. Personally, I think that Agnes was attacked on the bed. Then when the killer returned to the kitchen for a new weapon, Agnes got up and tried to block the door. Her attacker forced their way back in, pinning Agnes behind the door, and then once inside the room, finished her off. At the end of Cross, Glass takes the opportunity to correct his previous statement about the luminol. After reviewing his notes, he's reminded that the last thing they did before CSI cleared the scene was to process the entire scene with luminol. No blood was found in the bathrooms, and no identifiable footprints of blood were found on the carpet. D.A. Welchel chose not to question Glass on redirects, and his testimony was brought to an end. He seemed to do his best to be honest, and he did not present as an arm of the state's case meaning he didn't try to spin evidence in the state's favor. 
His opinions were only offered when asked, and right or wrong, there was at least logic behind those opinions. My only complaint with Glass is that I wish he had been more thorough. There are very few photos of this crime scene. We have to use a video shot by a firefighter to really examine the house. There were also several items that I think should have been collected and logged as evidence that were not. Namely, the contents of the trash can. We've got a long way to go with this case. But my outlook on the scene is definitely becoming more clear and evolving as I read through Glass's testimony. But we still have a lot of questions. We need to know what exactly happened to the Courtney's on that fateful day if we're ever going to figure out who killed them. The only way we're going to be able to figure that out is to hear what the medical examiner had to say. It's time now to dig into the medical evidence. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.